Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Scrubbed In podcast. I hope you've all been keeping well. Today is a very special episode and it's something that's very different to what we usually do and it's a massive privilege for us to bring on as a guest Dr. Philippa Kay. Dr. Kay is a fully qualified GP. She has a special interest in children, women and sexual health, has written a few books and a weekly column in the women's magazine and she's also made a few TV appearances. You may just know she recently published a book called Doctors Get Cancer Too and we just want to take some time to share her journey, share her story and get to know her in a bit more detail. So thank you for coming on today Dr K. How are you? Thank you for having me. As is the case with all our guests um, and I know there's a lot of things we want to talk about. Do you mind kind of sharing us a brief insight into the beginning of your your medical journey of when you decided you wanted to be a doctor, how you went through medical school and the first few years of that training? Oh, that was a long time ago. Um, so I am that cliche. I was a little girl that wanted to be a ballerina until I was about five. Um, and then basically from then onwards, I always wanted to be a doctor. Um, and I know that so many of us say it, but it's true. And I know that you can't go to university interviews anymore and say, I want to be a doctor to help people, but it's mm-hmm. true. Um, And I went to Downing College in Cambridge for my preclinical years. And I went to Guy's King's and Tommy's um, Medical School for my clinical years. Um, And I did my house jobs in the days when we were a PRHO, pre-registration house officer. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was the last few years of the old school training so um i was an sho um, and when i finished being an sho the st training system came in um and i was a gp registrar when i had my first baby uh and i'd already written a book or two by then and had various magazine deals um and i've been a gp ever since and i do a lot of stuff in the media um you find me on television on radio um and in various bits of the national press um and i've written lots of books um but all the books that i've written are they're for lay people but they're about pregnancy or child health or child development and this is the first time that i have written something which is about me as a person Mm. as opposed to medicine tell us a little bit about the passion of writing how did that begin I didn't think I was very good at English at school. I, um, in my school, you were, I think actually in lots of schools, you're a scientist or you're an artist, right? And yeah. and I wanted to be a scientist um, and doctors are scientists. And so I sort of thought um, that I couldn't do the rest. Um, mm. And after my first book was published, I wrote a letter to my English teacher and I said, you taught me how to write and you taught me how to write formally and informally. Um, And thank you. I've had my first book published. Um, And I think that that such a big part of the skill of being a GP is translating what I call medicalese into English. And that's what I do when I write. Um, And it's if you if i wanted to be a doctor to help people this is another way that i can help people and the public health messaging um and using the platform that i have to deliver those messages um when it comes to and also i really enjoy it um i find it 
quite soothing in a way um, because I think it would be entirely different kettle of fish if I was writing peer peer-reviewed articles that's that's something that that would I would find much more difficult and um, yeah. but I'm always writing about areas that I find very interesting so to do the research on them is interesting for me I'm not writing about hip joint replacements um, which are less interesting to me than might be interesting <laughs> to other people but they're less interesting to me um, so I write about things that are part of my everyday patch practice so for example my book that came out uh, this year 2020 um, was called the M word everything you need to know about the menopause mm. and it was um, it is a guide for women going through the menopause and that's part of my everyday practice as a GP um, and yeah. it's something that I'm interested in so that is easier for me to flow um, than some very detailed um, sort of research piece but we all have different skills and mm. and that's why we all sort of work together as a team but this book is entirely different this book I did not write with the idea that I would publish it I wrote it for me I wrote it as my diary um, which I haven't written since I was a little girl um, but I wrote it in a sort of emotional vomit onto the page mm. um, as a way to try and order the chaos that cancer brings and it took mm. a long time before I even mentioned it to my agent and publishing houses and said you know maybe actually this is something that will help other people and um, for a long time this was for me and me alone. Absolutely and it opens up it really does make you vulnerable I mean as to, to completely put yourself out there to write about yourself and let the world know about it um, but it really does let the audience and everyone out there know that there is someone else that's gone through it and it provides them hope. Um, if we now sort of go into that now and tell us how it how it all began. So just to backtrack and um, how it began when it when it, when I sort of from the point of view of why I publish it was actually I did a special module at the at the mm -hmm. time in GKT every term you had to do a special model module in something that was outside of whatever bit of clinical medicine we were doing at the time and it might have been ethics and it might have been law and one of them was about medical writing for non-medics mm -hmm. and we read books like John Diamond's book and um, Tears for Cancer and Ruth Picardi who was a journalist and I guess nowadays you would be reading books like when breath becomes air or adam k's book this is going to hurt yeah. or, or doctor or prison doctor um and i read those books and i wailed my way on the underground on my way to sort of supervisions about them um because lots of them were so very moving and yeah. what i realized was that we learn from our patients all the time um and they teach us lots of things from as simple as they come in with a diagnosis that we've never heard of and we have to go away and, and read about it and that happens in general practice it happens in every speciality of medicine but they teach us all kinds of things about compassion and empathy and understanding and what it is to have that condition and we can't meet everybody in the world nor we can nor can we have every disease that there is but books mm. are a way of understanding the patient experience and books like a diary really give you an insight into the patient experience and if we want to help our patients we need to understand what it is that they are going through as separate to the this, the issue of the surgery or of a medication and side effects or yeah. risks or benefits or prognosis we need to understand them from a holistic point of view as who they are and reading Absolutely. a diary can really help you 
do that. So my story started, um, well, I was diagnosed in May 2019, um, and I was 39 years old at the time. Now, the incidence of bowel cancer in, in people between 30 and 40 is 1 in 10,000. Um, it wasn't on my radar. And it's on my radar every day at work, right? You come in to see me yeah. in my general practice and you tell me what your symptoms are. And I'm listening out for one of them that might be a two-week weight referral. Um, yeah. And if I hear one of them, I'm heading down that, that road in my head with my questioning, um, with my examination, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's rarely on your radar when you're thinking about bowel cancer in a 30-year-old. And I had had some pelvic pain for a period of years um, and I've had lots I've had three cesarean sections I've had my appendix out through my cesarean section because it was about six eight weeks after my first child was born so they just reopened that one um, I've had surgery for an ectopic pregnancy I've had lots of pelvic surgery mm -hmm. um, and after my last cesarean section there was a lot of bleeding and they used vascular glue to essentially stop the bleeding our vascular glue is sticky um, and so you create a lot more scar tissue so i thought that it was all related to scar tissue and i put up with it um, for as long as i could put up with it and it gradually got worse and worse um, and when i went to the gp they said yeah probably it's scar tissue um, and then i went to a gynecologist who went yeah it's probably scar tissue but just in case your uterus is stuck to your bowel i want you to mm. see a bowel surgeon in case he thinks that we need both of us in there okay. and the bowel surgeon did a an mri scan which later on in the mdt when they looked at it three out of the four radiologists said that they probably wouldn't have even mentioned what the fourth radiologist mentioned which was a tiny bit of spasm um, but nothing else was seen Mm -hmm. And the um, colorectal surgeon said, well, it's not completely normal. We're going to have to do this scope. And I was cross because I didn't want to take a day off work and I didn't want to do bowel prep and I didn't want yeah. to have sedation for something that I thought was going to end up normal. And I was still going to go and have to have my uh, lap laparoscopy anyway. Um, to the extent I said to my husband, don't even take me. I'm going to get my mom to take me. You go to work, come home, look after the kids. Um, and remember i think i will remember this until until my dying day literally is that they pushed the madaz and the fentanyl um and i lay down on the bed to try and relax and i opened my eyes and i glanced at the screen and i saw what clearly was very very abnormal mm. and i looked at the surgeon and i said what's that and he looked at me and our eyes met and he did not say a word and at that point i knew and then as the room got quieter and quieter and the nurses got kinder and kinder, everything just made me realize more and more what was happening. And then my doctor wall just went up and I went into purely doctor mode, which was, okay, tell yeah. me what we're going to do next. And it was like, I'd never had any midazolam <laughs> and fentanyl <laughs> at all. I was completely awake and adrenaline and was sort of running through me um, as yeah. I went into what happens next. And then what happened next was, I mean, it's all very quick once it starts. Um, I had a partial colectomy, um, was in hospital for about, about 10 days, um, and then I had chemotherapy. And then we'd hoped that it would all be over, but in January this year, they found some more lesions, which initially they thought might be related to chemotherapy related changes but they kept growing um, and I had some keyhole surgery in May this year and then in September I had 
the biggie of all big surgeries, I had a laparotomy, um, which for anyone out there who doesn't know is a cut from between, essentially from between your breasts all the way down to your pubic bone. Um, I had part of my small bowel removed. I had part of a big muscle, sort of over your hip and lower back called the quadratus lumborum removed because there were lesions there. Mm. Um, and I had something called hypex which is hypothermic so extra heated intraperitoneal into the tummy um, chemotherapy so they place the chemotherapy directly inside your tummy um, and then they sew you all back up and this time I was in intensive care for 10 days um, and I was in hospital for 15 altogether in the middle of a global pandemic on my own oh, wow. and That's... that was tough to say the least and at the end of all of it though is that I am now cancer free that's that's amazing we can we can't even imagine what you had to go through i just want to take a moment and kind of ask you to share those moments when you did find out that you did have this lesion that you did have this cancer how were those first few hours those first few days which then transitioned to those first few weeks so i do um we're all taught to give bad news in a very sort of specific way and um, make sure that the person has a loved one with them. Don't necessarily yeah. say the words, it's cancer, first of all, but sort of do the bit where you say, oh, you know, you came in for um, investigations today. Do you know what those investigations were for? And someone would say, yes, because I had a breast lump. And what were we looking for on the scan? Breast cancer. And then you say yes. And essentially, the, the, and then you talk about breast cancer and you tell the person they've got breast cancer, but they've already sort of come to some of that realisation themselves. Mm. And so as... The surgeon sort of, he did, he did what he had to do. Um, and then he said, I'm just writing up the notes. I'm coming. I'm coming to see you um, in, in the recovery bit. Um, who's here with you? And I said, my mum. And they said, okay, we're going to go and get her. And I thought, okay, loved one with you, tip. Um, and, and my mum came and my mum got there before the surgeon did. And she took one look at me and she said, what's the matter? And I had to tell her. And that was pretty awful. Um, and I remember her arm coming down around me and, and she didn't let go. Um, and then the surgeon came in and he did exactly that. Well, you know, we had a scope there, yes. And whilst we didn't expect to find anything, and at that point I just interrupted and I went, yes, I know it's cancer, isn't it? And he said, yes. Um, and, and then straight away, I was in that very doctor mode, which is, okay, tell me the plan. And if that doesn't work, mm. tell me the plan. What's coming next? And and straight away the plan is is well, where else is this? Where is it spread? Um, and so he said we're going to get you a CT scan, and he needed to get a CT colonoscopy because he couldn't get around the legion um, during the scope. Um, and he said, oh, you know, I'm going to phone and sort all that out now. And one part of my brain sort of noted speed is not good. I mean, speed mm. is good, but it's not good in this in, because it means that we're, we're looking for something. Um, and, and I went very much onto autopilot. Um, I rang my husband. I told him to wait for until I came home until, until we spoke to the kids. And the surgeon already said to me, you're coming in for surgery next week. Um, and it was quick, quick, quick. And mm. so I had a bunch of scans, um, went home, told the children. My children at the time were... Um, 11, 7 and 4. Um, they have very different responses at, at 
at that age. So the four-year-old's question was, who's going to take me to school? Which is totally reasonable <laughs> and totally age-appropriate. The seven-year-old <laughs> came to give me a hug and then recoiled. Can I catch cancer? And the 11-year-old was reading a book where somebody in the class in the book had lost mm. a parent to cancer. And that was his question straight away. Are you going to die? And at that point, I could not give him an answer. Um, and so as a parent, you have to deal with all of that stuff as well as dealing with your own. Um, and yeah. then I had an appointment um, to see the surgeon and I went in like a good patient does with all my questions written down um, <laughs> and wrote diligently wrote down all the answers mm. and then just kept putting one foot in front of the other. Um, and until it was time to do the bowel prep and the surgery to the extent that I went to work. Um, and I told my colleagues who said, you don't have mm -hmm. to be here. Um, and my answer was, I need to still be here for just a minute. I need to not be somebody with cancer or somebody yeah. who's going to have this operation and work provided that for me throughout the whole of my treatment and um, mm -hmm. the opportunity to still be who you are because cancer tries to take everything be that mm. doctor wife mother daughter sister friend all of those things it tries to take all of them away or at the very least it all the conversations and all of those relationships become about cancer and when mm. i could go to work i could just be dr k and nobody knew and it was about other people, not about me. Um, and I found that very helpful. And yeah. I threw myself into organizing for the children. And it was all in a way about trying to take control over the uncontrollable. So yeah. I wrote little letters for them to open every morning and I got little gifts. And, and then I thought, well, they're going to know something's wrong. Mommy's letting us have a little piece of chocolate for breakfast. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and I made school rotors and I cooked for the freezer and I just kept myself very, very busy in that those, and it yeah. was only a few days um, before there was nothing left to do but take the bowel prep and, and go. Um, and whilst there is no time to process at the beginning, I was not in a position to be able to process. And actually during that first time in hospital, um, and even probably this last time in hospital, especially being on your own, it was very much about survival and i don't mean that physically i mean that mentally just keep going because yeah. if i were to have stopped to think about it at that time i would have fallen to pieces and i didn't yeah. want to go into surgery fall into pieces not that there's anything wrong with that but i knew that for me i needed to go in saying see you on the other side um and that determination was what I needed. And yes, I fell apart lots of times afterwards. Mm. <laughs> but right at the beginning, it was about survival. And I think that that doctor mode that you can step in when yeah. the red phone has rung in A&E and you're mm. waiting outside, right? And your gloves are on and you know something's yeah. coming. You know the helicopter's about to land and you know it's about to be busy, busy, busy. Right now, all you can do is wait. Um, yeah. And it felt like that at the beginning. What was it like? So you went through the patient journey of loads of appointments, seeing loads of different doctors, having loads of different investigations. And um, often as a doctor, we can make loads of referrals and say, OK, you've got to follow up with this doctor, that doctor. You're going to go to this clinic and that clinic. And we often don't take into account what it's 
actually like to go from one to another to another to another to be on this endless journey that doesn't seem to have an end point what was that what was that like it takes up all your time they, they sent me home from hospital and they said to me you need to rest and recover um, and you have to do two walks of 10 minutes a day um, and you need to sleep in the day and you need to eat at this point or whatever and then within about a week I had an appointment to see the oncologist and you have to have your blood tests a certain amount of time before um, or, or and there was sort of a follow-up scan and then there was the physio and then there was go and get your your clips out and whole days would be taken up with this I was like hang on I was supposed to go to sleep or <laughs> I was supposed to do like a 10 minute walk it's not a lot um and I haven't had time and even yeah. the act of initially even the act of getting in the car um and yeah. I couldn't drive but being driven to an appointment utterly exhausting um mm. and and how it takes up all of your time um and in the same way that in hospital it's really difficult to sleep and you think I'm supposed to be sleeping isn't that what I'm supposed to do to heal um, and then at home you're like I'm supposed to be recovering and yeah I'm going backwards and forwards um, I think but on the other hand I felt very held and contained and safe because I mm. knew exactly when all those appointments were going to be and as I got towards the end of my chemotherapy I began thinking about the fact that it wasn't going to be like that. So you go from yeah. a position where you would see the chemo sweet nurses and the receptionists, everyone knew who you are, and I would go in on a Wednesday to be hooked up and sort of have my first loads of infusions that you would have in the chemo suite, and then I was sent home attached to my chemotherapy through um, a line in my chest, um, and I had like a little grenade of chemotherapy that was in a bum bag, Mm. And 48 hours later, I would go back to be disconnected. Um, yeah. And so I would do that on a Wednesday and a Friday. And then the following Tuesday, I would go in and have bloods and then see the oncologist. And then before I knew it, we were back in because it was a two weekly cycle um, to have again. And so everybody knows who you are and mm. everybody is there. And you think that, OK, I'm seen. OK, nothing can happen to me because I'm seen. Mm. And all these people know me. And then suddenly they say, all right, you got an appointment, then we'll see you in three months or six months or nine months or a year. And I'm not even at that place. And actually that in itself is scary because yeah. you think, hang on, something could be happening and no one could know. Absolutely. That, that sounds very scary as well. And I, I can imagine what it might have been like to know that you're seeing, you've gone from seeing someone on a weekly basis to just suddenly months later. Did you have any... In that, mo in, in that period at all, did you have any moments where you were really struggling and how did you sort of reach out for any support if you did? Um, how did you get over those hurdles? Um, there are lots of times when it's a struggle um, and the feelings about cancer are all very, very big um, and they're all very conflicting often. So you can be, you can be brave and you can be terrified um and being brave doesn't mean that you're not terrified and being terrified doesn't mean that you're not brave and you can be angry and you can be sad and and you can be frustrated and some days it just sucks um but all of those feelings are very big and then you're i mean i 
with a, a young mum with young kids and you're thinking about your mortality really for the first time. Um, and I have had psychotherapy since probably about six, eight weeks after my um, initial surgery. And I um, have no issues telling everybody um, that I have weekly um, therapy still. Um, because there is a trauma to your body there's also a trauma to your mind um, mm. and the two are very closely linked and you need to be able to talk about that and you need to be able to heal from both of those and as much as your friends and family can love you when you're hurting they hurt and you know that and so when yeah. you talk to them about it you're very aware that they're hurting and that you're hurting them um, mm. and also everybody tries to fix it but sometimes it can't be fixed and sometimes you just need someone to say yeah that's pretty awful but family and friends find that really hard to do mm. therapists don't <laughs> and they don't bring their own stuff to your sessions um, so I found therapy very helpful for me the hardest thing the whole time the hardest thing has been waiting be that waiting for the next set of tests, be that waiting for a scan or your genetic results. But this year I've had a lot of waiting and a lot of uncertainty. Are these lesions growing? Are they cancer? Are they not cancer? If we do this keyhole surgery, have we made a mistake and that actually we should do the big one straight away? Do we have time? Do we not have time? And none of these questions have answers. Mm. And I don't like that doctors we like answers patients are desperate yeah. for them we like them this is what the plan is the plan being to wait and we still don't know the answer is is really difficult to deal with psychologically um and to the extent that it began to affect my sleep um my appetite because it's just a constant round of unanswerable questions mm. and those questions are frightening mm. um and then the other really big difficulty is doing it on your own um being in the middle of a pandemic in icu for 10 days and you're never on your own technically because there's a nurse with you the whole time but you are alone um and there there was a day a particular day where it was extraordinarily difficult and as a GP we do use time with our patients and we say you know come see us next week or in two weeks and we'll see mm. what's happened etc etc and often we see patients um, when actually there's not necessarily something medically wrong but they're dealing with issues mm. in their lives and I've always said you know we're just talking about getting through today you don't need to think about next week next month next year um, yeah. And if today is too hard, just this hour, and if this hour is too hard, five minutes. And I've always been able to get through five minutes. And for the past two years, I have not been able to think about, you know, a future and years ahead of that. That's been yeah. too, too big a leap and, and potentially too much of a loss to think about. So yeah. sometimes it's been five minutes to five minutes. And there was a day in A&E, sorry, in ICU where the pain was extraordinarily bad and mm. it wasn't five minutes or even one minute it was breath to breath and wow. that's incredibly difficult to be just thinking take one breath and another breath and there were periods in that time where it was literally just the voice in my head shouting it's going to end it's going to end just keep breathing um that got me through and that's incredibly incredibly difficult but it also makes me realize now 
Mm. So that's all you have to do. Just keep going. And it's that taking one step or taking one breath is, mm. is, is everything because all those steps and all the, that breath, they add up to the great leaps, they add up yeah. to the healing and they add up to what true strength really is. You don't have to feel it. You just have to keep going. In those, just picking on that moment of all those moments that were uncertain and you were feeling alone, I got a sneak peek into your book and I noticed that you wrote letters just in case. What was, what, what, what happened around those moments? What made you write those letters? And if you can tell us a little bit about them even. So I wrote letters um, before I went in for my first surgery. I wrote to my parents, I wrote to my husband, I wrote to my children. Um, the children's one is in the book. And I had no intention of dying, none. Um, I was very clear about that in my head. Mm. But the doctor part of me also knows that sometimes things happen. Um, and actually this time when I had my laparotomy, it was the first time that I've ever signed a consent form for myself that, that has under the risks death. Um, yeah. and, and that was sort of quite daunting in itself. And so I didn't plan as if I was dying. I didn't write birthday cards every year or graduation cards or cards if you get married or, or all those things that I sort of think that mm. I might do um, if I was in that situation. But I also needed to know that there was something just in case. And yeah. essentially, essentially they're love letters. During those moments when you were in ITU, and I imagine they probably didn't let any visitors come, how did you get through that? I know you were kind of taking it bit by bit, breath by breath. What did you do? Did you create a mental framework or what type of internal systems did you create to help you get through it that maybe someone else who is in a similar situation to you can find some benefit from? Um, firstly, I begged every person I meet to have I met to have a visitor. <laughs> that was the first thing I did because they knew I was going to be in hospital for two weeks, and yeah. they'd sort of said, "If you're in hospital for more than ten days to two weeks, then we might let someone in." I was like, "But you know that I'm going to be in hospital for this long." <laughs> um, and so on day, uh, I think it was about day five actually. They let my husband in in full PP for one hour. I've never been so glad to see him in my life. Um, I technology helps. That's the first thing. Um, mm. But technology is, is harder than you think it is in that you have to have enough, you have to be able to take a big enough breath to throw your voice on the phone. Yeah. Um, and when you're in a lot of pain because you've been cut and you can't take a big enough breath, that's an effort. Mm. Um, there's also something about sort of thinking that you have to have something to say, whilst if someone's just sitting next to you, you don't have to say anything at all. Um, but technology helps. I said to my friends, I, I would like every time I pick up my phone there to be something there. And they came through. Um, and actually I asked for letters. Um, it's old fashioned, but that's what I asked. Um, and so my friends and family either put in the post or they came to the reception area um, in the hospital and they left a letter. Um, and letters are something that you can read over and over and they felt like a real connection. But what it taught me more than anything, actually, is to ask. And I think that as patients, we have this idea that we shouldn't ask and that we don't want to bother people um, <clears throat> and that we must try and do everything for ourselves. And when there's no one there to help you and you can't get out of bed on your own, you have to ask. Mm. Um, so it taught me to, to be better able to ask for help. 
Mm. Having gone through this massive ordeal where you know it probably has changed you as a person how has it translated in the way you are now as a wife as a mother as a daughter and even as a clinician that's a big question i think i think you can't think that cancer doesn't change you um and there is work to be done in order to accept that and to accept the person that you are and that cancer is part of my story now um and I think that um, it's made the clinician bit is probably the easiest bit to answer, um, which is that I am better able to sit in the silence with my patients now. I'm better able to not always try and fix it. And in general practice, especially, you can't always try and fix it. Um, yeah. But just to sit and say, that's tough, isn't it? And actually, often that's all that they need is just that little bit of a connection. Um, and now so many of my patients, because I am in the press, know that I've had cancer. Um, so they know that I truly understand. Um, it's also made me think about questions that I wouldn't potentially always have asked before about the whole person. So someone's had a huge surgery. Um, I know they've got kids. Who's helping you with the school run? And mm. it's not that I can help them with the school run as their GP. But the fact that I can ask that question or make them think about it or, or even just show that I understand that the school run can, is a challenge um, means that we have a deeper connection. Um, so it's definitely changed me as a clinician. How has it changed me as a mother? I don't make promises anymore. I don't promise. Yes, I'll come. And, and that's, that's sad. I used to you know, promise. Oh, yes, I'll come and see you in the concert. Yes, I'll do whatever. And now, now I say I do my best um because they never knew when I was going to have to just be taken to hospital because I had a temperature or you know yeah. whatever else was going on um I think but I think it's done a lot of good actually in other ways in that it's allowed me to focus on myself in a way that I never probably would have um and it's taught me to live much more in the present um because there was a time when a future was much more difficult to comprehend and it's further given me i guess the ability especially with the book to help other people um and the connections that i have made within the cancer community um and various charitable sectors um are amazing and if my story helps anyone out there to feel less alone or help someone who's got someone in their family or a loved one or a friend um, helps them understand what their friend is going through and therefore what not to say and what to say mm. then for me then something's good has come of what happened no definitely and i think it's it's quite noble that you do and you are open to sharing this experience for the benefit of others because i know some people when they do go through this they kind of shut down they don't want to share anything particularly not on a public forum and i do see a lot of people reading it and benefiting from it i don't know if your patients that come to see you know that you had cancer um, and if they do have you noticed a different type of consultations that do take place from a patient perspective meaning do you feel they're more open with you they can say things a bit more rawly um, i don't know if you noticed that at all so um, for a long time, they didn't know. Um, mm. And that was my choice. 
because one, I don't want to burden them. I don't want to feel that they feel that they're a burden to me. I mean, I've got the only job in the world where people say, sorry, doc, I know you're so busy. I'm so sorry to disturb you. I'm like, my whole job is for you to disturb me. That's my job. Mm. Um, and so I didn't want to add to that burden. And as I said before, I didn't want to go to work to talk about my cancer. I wanted to go to work to go to work. Um, but I um, am on the television um, and I decided that I wanted to publish this story and that I wanted to come out and talk about it to talk to other people and it was in a lot of the newspapers and so lots of my mm. patients now know um, and generally they come in and they say oh I'm so sorry or oh my goodness my problem doesn't matter you've gone through this big thing and I say this is your time this is about you mm. um, and I can sort of move on but okay. when they come in and they want to talk about something big that's happening um I often hear, I think you understand because you did this, or I think you under, or I feel mm. that you might understand because of X. Um, <laughs> and whilst I think that we don't have to experience every illness, as I said, to understand, um, mm. this has given me greater understanding, and I hope that the book gives other people a greater understanding too. Mm. I imagine going through this and seeing you know, your family also go through it with you. What has been the one greatest thing you've learned about yourself? I imagine there's been times where you've had a lot of time to reflect, to ponder. What is one thing you've you've discovered recently about yourself that perhaps you wouldn't have if you didn't go through being diagnosed and treated for cancer? Um, probably that I'm enough and that I can and that you don't have to be I know we all use cliches when we're talking about cancer but you don't have to be a superhero and you don't have to to think that you're strong you just have to go um and that I can and 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 I guess I've shown that to myself because I have and that's what every body out there who's living with whatever illness or whatever trauma mm. or whatever mm stress or grief or whatever they're dealing with he thinks i'm not strong enough you've survived everything thus far all the bad things that have happened in your life so far you've survived a hundred percent of them um you know you're strong and yeah. now i know that about myself no and that's amazing to hear i think you're in a very unique position where and i think the book is about it where doctors do get cancer and you are both a clinician and a patient we have a lot of listeners that are medical students, junior doctors. What advice would you give to them being on the other side in terms of how we can better improve our own practice when dealing with patients or delivering bad news? Because um, I imagine you can also see it from our point of view as well as individuals that are working. What can we do to kind of make that journey better, more pleasant and be there um, for those patients? listen and I know that sounds like a cliche actually and I remember thinking I am listening um but actually if you give your patients an opportunity to talk about not just their disease but their how it impacts on everything else you're going to get a much greater understanding it isn't as simple as needs two to transfer to chair what does that mean what does that mean for them at home what does that mean for them in their Ability to function when it says can walk 10 meters unaided there was a period of time when I had to transfer to a chair with two and there was one day when I couldn't even do that um, but what does that mean and 
And if you ask them, they'll tell you. Um, but I think the most important thing that I would say is you can't necessarily fix it, but you can accompany during it. And things are much more bearable if someone's with you. No, definitely. And I think it's been a massive privilege for you to take the time out to come to the show more so even writing a book giving such a raw account for everyone to benefit to hear your story and i do hope a lot of people do benefit from it um so i want to thank you dr k thank you so much thank our listeners and we will be giving our book to one of our listeners as well um but we do wish you all the best um and it's been an absolute absolute pleasure the book's called doctors get cancer too and it is available online and books in bookshops from February 2021. Perfect. Thank you so much. Take care.